think what they do is they fall into a trap of, hey, after I get this next assignment, this next gavel or this next committee or after this next election, then I'll really fight the way I intended to when I got here. And that's part of what's wrong with Washington. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. This is a special bonus episode, and you know what that means, because most of our bonus episodes involve a guest who is an elected official. And I can tell you completely genuinely, because you know I would not be dishonest to you, that this elected official is one of my favorite people in the imperial city of Washington, D.C. And the reason he's one of my favorite people is because he knows what time it is. It's time to take back self-governance for the American people away from people in D.C. All of that to say, Congressman Bob Good from the Commonwealth of Virginia, fellow Virginian, thanks for being here. Great to be with you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. You have not been in Congress long, and yet you have made a mark, not just for yourself, but you would always correct me as, as a friend fraternally, a mark for your constituents with whom you spend a lot of time. And, and they know and you know that the time has come to bring more common sense and truth to Washington. Before we get into a specific piece of legislation that you have authored and that Heritage is, is very happy to be supportive of, what has been your impression of Washington in the years you've been here? Well, I came with the lowest of expectations and I was still disappointed. No, actually, it's a little better than what I anticipated in the sense that you come wondering if there's anyone that you can trust, if there's, if there's anyone that you'll respect or admire or feel like you have a kinship with. And there are some, and about 20 of them, as a matter of fact, that you saw a few weeks ago. But uh, certainly you re recognize how large the task is and how difficult it is to try to make a difference and how this town and this government is set up to try to prevent you from making a difference. However, I have been pleased that there are some courageous conservative warriors who are fighting not only groups like yours who support us, but also some members of Congress who are here for the right reasons and trying to do the right things. And uh, we just need more of that. And we need to encourage and shore up those who want to be that way, uh, but maybe are influenced uh, too much by the wrong things. Or I think what they do is they fall into a trap of, hey, after I get this next assignment, this next gavel or this next committee or after this next election, then I'll really fight the way I intended to when I got here. And that's part of what's wrong with Washington. Well, you know that I agree with that. All of us at Heritage agree with that enthusiastically. We look forward to, to having some wins here. And, and I, it's that point, having some wins that I want to probe a little bit. And that is to ask you over the last couple of weeks since the conclusion of the speaker vote about the reactions of two groups of people two decidedly very different groups of people. Mm -hmm. The first most important would be your constituents. You, you told me as we were preparing to press record that you had spent some time doing some town halls in your district. What was, what was the tenor? What were people saying about the speaker vote about what's ahead in Washington? Yeah, we had a week back in the district where we were in recess and traveling around. For me, it's 24 cities and counties. And at the end of the previous week, we thought, you know, why don't we do a series of town halls and get around the district? We'll advertise these and get as much word out as we can on short notice and just give folks the opportunity to hear what we were doing, why we were doing it, how it happened, and kind of be able to ask questions and just hear from me directly, even as much as we had tried to convey that leading up to the speaker vote and through that week of contested uh, votes for the speaker. And we had huge turnout and overwhelmingly supportive. Admittedly, there were some folks who said, you know, I really didn't quite understand it. I didn't know why I had some concerns, but now that I've heard why you were doing what you're doing and what was accomplished in the uh, 
agreements that have been made that will give us an opportunity for Congress to function more effectively to do what we're supposed to do, uh, very supportive. So we really had literally in seven town halls, we had one expression of disagreement, and that was a lady who ended up talking to the media and identifying herself that she was a Democrat who showed up hoping there'd be more Democrat opposition to me there, and she was a little disappointed that there wasn't. But to, but it was really uh, gratifying to get around the dish when you to, to know that what you're doing that you believe is right uh, is also what your constituents want you to do. Well, thank you always for having the courage to do that. The second group of people would be your colleagues, but in particular, a couple of weeks into this agreement, what, how's the House running? I mean, do, do you have some cautious optimism that the, and I agree with you, of course, that the fight was worth it, but that in the first couple of weeks of implementing those rules changes, that you, you have some hope that there can be some good things passed and bad, bad bills killed? Yeah, it was really the conference is much better for it. The Congress is better for it and the country is better for it. And there's widespread agreement among my Republican colleagues. It was really ended up being a very healthy thing that brought us together in a lot of ways. And you have almost no disagreement on that we're better for it. I I often think of the quote uh, from John F. Kennedy who said that success has a thousand fathers while failure is an orphan. And so there's a lot of me too on, hey, look what we got together and folks are, are glad for what we went through. But to have structural systemic changes to the rules and uh, on how we're going to function through regular order with single issue bills and germane amendments that are allowed from the floor for the first time in years, uh, a minimum amount of time to read bills before we vote on them. Uh, Those would be really opportunity for change as well as have uh, ideological balance on our committees, a commitment to no longer have leadership uh, interfere with open primaries, putting their thumb on the scale against the will of those respective Republican voters in those districts. Those kinds of things will give us a real opportunity to change. And frankly, a greater ability to hold our speaker accountable to do what he has said he will do, just like the voters can hold us accountable. And we've empowered him when he goes to negotiate with President Biden or uh Majority Leader Schumer that, hey, I've got members of my conference who when they say no, they mean no, and they've got the courage of their convictions. And then also I've been, you know, we've with the rules, I've been constrained to where I don't have the ability to pass these massive omnibus spending bills anymore like we've done in the past. It really gives us a lot of hope for the conservative movement and therefore for the republic. And, and just to, to, to react very positively to what you said, during the speaker vote, the weeks since, I've been called sent text messages by a lot of friends around the country, supporters of heritage, some of them with with you and your 19 colleagues who who forced those votes in principle, but they weren't sure about the specifics, And, and mm-hmm. to, to your point. And to the person, once I gave them the explanation that speaking for heritage, which is my job and, and, a, and a great duty, we were 100% aligned with, with all 20 of you, not in any way gratuitously against the speaker as a man, he knows that, that the conference is better, the Congress is better, the speaker will be a better speaker. And we're already seeing because of how deeply involved we are at Heritage and in, in legislation and meeting with you and your colleagues, including many of your colleagues who weren't part of the 20, that we think that that the, the policy agenda that will take back 
self-governance for the American people is, is in much better shape. And, and that's good because we don't have a whole lot of reasons for optimism in the near term in Washington, D.C., which is a comment about the reality of the Democrats controlling the Senate and the White House. But I want to hang on this before we get to your, your legislation, which is about protecting the Second Amendment, to, to get into your crystal ball. This is, this is Bob Good's crystal ball about where the conservative movement goes from here, what we need to be emphasizing in 2024, but also beyond. I mean, what's, what's the aspirational vision that we can now articulate as a result of having won that fight a few weeks ago? One of the things I tried to convey uh, in interviews and town halls and just as I met with constituents is uh, that they saw history developing during that week because for the first time in what, 160 years or so, you had members of Congress do what many of us call on our elected officials to do, set aside selfish interests, take personal risk, uh, not put um, self-preservation uh, uh, at the top of their list, and be willing to vote against their own party at personal peril. Uh, and we call on our members of Congress to do that. We say, hey, status quo isn't right, you know, establishment, the rhinos, doing what we've always done and, and the swamp and all that. Well, you saw members of Congress willing to do that over and over and over, you know, ended up being 15 votes, as you know. And then we, and I, but what I tried to convey to folks is, yes, we got some real changes put in place, but it's only given us an opportunity. And we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable, you know, people called it chaos or a clown show or, gosh, this is embarrassing. And then after, and I've tried to encourage my colleagues trying to get them to stay the course and hang in there. So this is going to settle in a few days. In, in a couple of weeks, no one's going to care how long it took for us to get a speaker. Certainly no one's going to care six months from now or two years from now. We're running in. They'll judge us on what we've done with the opportunity that we've been given. But immediately you turn the page. And I went to see Kevin McCarthy. We sat down together. I pledged my support for him, told him I'm behind him. And we're united together, of course, now that he is the speaker. But we turned the page to the immediate horizon on the debt ceiling, as you know. And so the, where the where the real fight is, and, and arguably, of course, the greatest response of the House is the power of the purse to protect the ability of the Congress or the government to be able to borrow money when needed, to protect the full faith and credit of the United States government, and to obviously... Uh, exercise the power of the purse. So the spending fights will be critical. That's, you know, one of the greatest threats of the country, of course, is the 32 trillion in national debt. And so we've got to be willing to take risks again and to be uncomfortable, uh, willing to shut the government down, which is not the same thing as a default. You know, the media want, and the Democrats want to put those two together. If you shut the government down, it means you're defaulting. We will have more than sufficient revenue because of the Trump tax cuts to pay the d interest on the debt to pay our bondholders, but we will have to prioritize. Uh, not only in the immediacy on, on we, as we navigate through the debt ceiling situation, but in the long term as we put ourselves on a path to fiscal responsibility. Thank you for that explanation. There are a lot of issues. I would, I guess I would posit in every policy issue, there is room for some improvement for the sake of, of devolving power from D.C. back to the American people. And one of them clearly is protecting the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. You have always been thoughtful about this, but beyond just being thoughtful, you also have a piece of legislation that, that you are, you're pushing. Why don't you talk about that? Explain why now is so important for this particular piece of legislation. Well, as you know, we have a constitution, and as much as the Dems may not like it, we do have that, thankfully, and we do have a Bill of Rights, and we do have a Second Amendment. 
And we do have, we, we're unique among the nations of the world, as our founders said, that we have God-given rights that are protected or enshrined in our constitution. And the Second Amendment is that right that protects all the other rights. And you also have a left uh, Democrat party that is determined to try to strip away that right, To tr which as you know, the Second Amendment, it's not about sport or hunting or recreation. It's not even primarily about self-defense, although that's a critical part of it. It's about ensuring we remain a free people. And any honest reading of the founders' uh, extra constitutional writing to give us the understanding from the Federalist Papers and otherwise on what they meant with the Second Amendment, it was to ensure we remain free as a check against tyranny. And a government that operates within the boundaries of the Constitution has no fear from an armed citizenry. And matter of fact, that is not only a guarantor of our freedom within our own nation in terms of a check on an oppressive regime, but it also is the greatest uh, deterrent to a land invasion from a foreign adversary, is that we are an armed people with some 400 million guns, safest place in the world is the United States from, from a national defense standpoint because of that. But you have this relentless assault on that from an unchecked bureaucracy, in this case specifically the ATF, that, as you know, is trying to retroactively make criminals those who lawfully purchased not only their handgun, their pistol, but also their accessory, their pistol brace, typically for those who maybe have some kind of a limitation where they can only use one limb, maybe a veteran or a former law enforcement officer who's, who's been, who was wounded. And so what our bill does, the Pistol Act, was it says that you, know, you cannot through – uh, a, fee, a, a regulatory fiat makes someone a criminal by declaring a pistol race, uh, excuse me, a pistol brace make, makes a, a handgun a, into a short barrel rifle falling under the restrictions from the uh, NFA, the National Firearms Act from 1934. So we're trying to just, again, continue to battle the relentless assault on the Second Amendment rights by the left. Thank you for your work on on protecting the Second Amendment. In, you know, in my experience in public policy, but in my in my lifetime, being an, an an avid gun owner, shall we say, I've never seen the level of assault against the Second Amendment with very spurious reasoning. Mm -hmm. You know, there's I don't actually think there's much room for a, a legitimate policy debate about this. But if there were, it certainly wouldn't include the reasoning that the president of the United States himself uses. You know Scranton, Pennsylvania well, and I can't imagine that there are many people in the president's hometown and the surrounding counties who think that he's he's on target on this one. Yeah, to your reference, I was born in Wilkesbury, PA, and then lived a little bit in Scranton, PA. The first four years of my life were between Wilkesbury, Scranton, PA, and in northeastern Pennsylvania, where the president is allegedly from, as I said earlier. But uh, Exactly right. Uh, it is it is a critical responsibility for us. The number one role of the federal government is safety and security of its citizens, and part of that is not just protecting us from foreign invasion, like at the border, or national security, but it's also protecting uh, the rights of the minority from the tyranny of the majority, and protecting our constitutional rights generally. And so there's not a more important fight than for us to fight to protect our Second Amendment. Think about that. Of, of our 10 rights uh, uh, enshrined in the Bill of Rights, the one that they want to say, you, your ability to exercise that right is dependent on those who break the law. So when someone breaks the law, then that diminishes your ability as a law-abiding citizen to exercise a fundamental right to self-defense. The president has also betrayed his his people, and I would say all people, on the issue of life. Mm. And you're a man of deep faith, as, as I am, and it troubles us significantly, to say the least, to see him and others in 
people in other high positions of government be so pro-abortion. What's the situation, Congressman, regarding protecting life in Congress now in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision? And I always in this show like to give our audience an action item. Is, is there something you would encourage members of the audience who are, are really focused on the life issue, and hopefully all of them are, that they could do to help? It, it is a critical issue. There's no more important issue. And some of my colleagues, even friends in the media or friends with some of conservative groups or certainly members of Congress, have gotten it wrong or unintentionally misrepresented what happened with the Dobbs decision. And they'll say, oh, the Dobbs decision sent it back to the states. No, the Dobbs decision said there is no constitutional right to an abortion that cannot be restricted. And it returned the issue of abortion to the people's representatives, which includes the federal level as well as the state level. Some of my best friends in Congress uh, suddenly became hyper uh, hyper uh, federalists and say, oh, we have no role now when they were co-sponsors or sponsors of lots of life legislation before the Dobbs decision. And then many, I, I think, have got on our side have almost gotten fearful of the responsibility we now have. And what I've called upon is we need to show the same courage that those Supreme Court justices did, that in the face of you know, uh, intimidation and threats and harassment, literally at their places of residence as well as their places of work, uh, illegally to, uh, to, for that matter, they showed courage after the leak and did the right thing and overturned the most catastrophic Supreme Court decision in the history of the country, the only one that cost 63 million lives. So all of us need to engage on the issue. And yes, state legislatures have a role. The Congress has a role. That's why I'm a co-sponsor of the Life at Conception Act again. Uh, but we, you know, we all need to try to change hearts and minds in our respective communities and to stand up and support our, you know, my wife and I, we support our local crisis, crisis pregnancy center. Uh, but we also need to make our voices heard to our elected officials that we expect them to stand up on life. The Democrat Party and Joe Biden, who used to he used to claim to be pro-life, as you know, and many Democrats used to claim to be pro-life. And now they've become the bar party that celebrates death, that celebrates abortion, that wants no restrictions up to the moment of birth at any time for any reason and wants to force you to pay for it. So they've surrendered all the so-called center ground. They're at the extreme hard left on it. We ought to be starting from a position of life at conception and then you know, I, I'm a co I co-sponsored and voted for, of course, the Born Alive bill. Because if I believe every life counts, I'll vote for any pro-life legislation that comes while continuing to fight for life at conception. Yeah, and Heritage's position is exactly where you are, that we'll support any pro-life legislation, knowing that ultimately we at Heritage will not have done our part in this fight to protect every life until by federal action, to be clear, there is no abortion in this country. That's that's the objective. And we don't mean that from ideal ivory tower think tankness. We mean that from the standpoint of natural law and God's truth, which is that every life must be protected. And so a very heartfelt thanks publicly. I tell you this a lot in private messages to you to keep encouraging you for your leadership and courage on this. You know that Heritage is going to be with you every step of the way. Let's end on a on an optimistic note, although I, I have great supernatural optimism on that issue, too, because people, like you say, will get involved in crisis pregnancy centers, will understand this is a battle for the culture, too. But on the note of optimism, let's say I'm going to invite you into this exercise we use at Heritage. And it is when we think about our own policy objectives and how we measure success of them, we always want to go to the end of the decade. And so the exercise is this. It's New Year's Eve 2029. And I call you and I say, my friend, Congressman Bob Good, we 
have had some success. We as a country, we as a movement, since we first met several years ago. When you hear me say that, what are the first two or three things that come to mind that, given your service as a congressman, you will have said, oh, yes, Kevin, because we did these two or three things, we're taking back America? I'm going to say maybe five or six. I'll, oh, you, do, I'll try to do I'm them, I'll try to do them very friend. briefly, though, in the interest of time. Uh, number one, we've restored faith in our once sacred institutions, FBI, federal law enforcement, IRS, Department of Justice, and we no longer see a two-tier justice system or a weaponization of the federal government against its citizens. We've restored trust in that. Number two, we've restored trust in our election systems, that we have uh, greatly diminished the ability to interfere in our elections in a way that's obviously dishonest and thumb on the scales, whether it's big tech or practices in our respective states that uh, facilitate fraud. Uh, number three, we've secured our border and we have reformed immigration in a way that puts American interests first, that you know requires patriotic assimilation, merit-based immigration, and that sort of thing. Number four, we've come a long way to uh, uh, defeating the left's uh, assault on our children through our education system and the indoctrination, the sexualization, just the anti-America, uh, harmful diversity, equity, inclusion, CRT, transit, all those kind of things been going on the left. We've come a long way there for school school choice and also just defeating the left's just uh, very negative control of our education system. Uh, and then whatever number that I'm on there after that, I would say uh, we've also brought fiscal responsibility back to the country. We have uh, by then hopefully balanced our budget, reduced our national debt, and we've got uh, reforms in place from a fiscal standpoint where we're you know, we're securing our financial future for our kids and our grandkids. Congressman Bob Good, my friend, friend of heritage, thanks for being the man in the arena, as Teddy Roosevelt would say. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate what you and the whole heritage team does. Thanks a lot. Hope you enjoy that conversation. You know, these bonus episodes tend to be a little more brief because these elected officials are very busy, but I think I can speak for Congressman Bob Good that he'll be willing to come back. We'll have a longer conversation soon. In the meantime, take care as we fight in optimism to take back this country. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.